Hey everyone, I'm Ben Norton, and this is the Empire and Deep State series that I at Multipolarista am co-hosting with my good friends Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis of the American Exception podcast. This series is based on the book American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State by historian and political scientist Aaron Good. And this is part 13, and we are in the moment, we are in the part where we're talking about history. And in the previous part, part 12, we discussed the early history of the U.S. national security state, the creation of the U.S. national security state, the plans made by the, uh, you know, elites in Wall Street and Washington and the Council on Foreign Relations to create what they called an American century. We discussed the coup against Henry Wallace and the rise of Truman, who created much of this apparatus of the national security state. We talked about the birth of the deep state, the beginning of the Cold War, George Kennan and the Long Telegram. We talked about the National Security Act of 1947 and the elastic clause that allows the CIA to do covert operations, NSC 10-2. So all of that history is very important. We started discussing the links between spy agencies in the U.S. and organized crime networks, the mafia. Definitely check out the first part of this. That's part 12 and in the previous part for this episode. It's extremely important history. Today, we're continuing where we left off. We're in the 1940s, and we're discussing the rise of the U.S. military-industrial complex. So, Aaron, let's get into the discussion of the beginning of the first Cold War and the military buildup. There was a huge part of that. We saw that the OSS, which became the CIA, many of these intelligence networks at the end of World War II were already planning on waging a Cold War against the Soviet Union. What was the rationale that they gave to try to justify this military buildup, especially considering the fact that the U.S. had nuclear weapons and the Soviet Union didn't at that point? Now, the, the Soviet Union was not in any position to seek to confront the U.S. militarily. They did not have the nuclear bomb, and the U.S. did have the nuclear bomb. They had a monopoly on, on nuclear weapons. And Harry Truman was kind of a obstinate and, uh, you know, sort of stupid about this. I mean, he, he asked Robert Oppenheimer, one of the leaders of the Manhattan Project and the top scientists there uh, on, on that project, uh, how long is this nuclear monopoly going to last? And then before Oppenheimer could even answer, Truman says, you know, forever, he, he says, basically, or what he's asked, like, when they'll get the bomb. And then Truman says, they'll never get it. They'll never get it. Right. So the, there was they were very arrogant about the power of, of this, of, of having the bomb. And they used it as a sort of as a way to bully the Soviet Union uh, into submission diplomatically. Yet Jimmy Burns, the secretary of state under Truman, at one point in uh, negotiations with the Soviets, he says, I'm a Southerner. We carry our artillery in our pocket and I'll. Pull, uh, pull out an atom bomb and drop it on you. Some of that effect, right? So this is the, the, these are the people that were running things after Roosevelt was gone. But the military threat was never really the issue for the people that were planning the empire. Um, in the early years after the uh, end of World War II, you have the establishment of the Marshall Fund, which is meant to um, help Western Europe rebuild but it also sort of, uh, you know, builds ties between the Western European and U.S. economies. 
uh, you know, there's so these this this money is conditional on Western Europe doing certain things, some of which are very friendly to U.S. businesses. So the Marshall Plan was also a, a benefit to U.S. corporations. You're giving money to Western Europe and a lot of that money is coming right back to the U.S. But um, in the, the Soviets actually wanted some money also to be able to rebuild because they all most of their industry, especially in the Western part of the country, had been destroyed by the by Germany and norm. You know, whole cities had been destroyed. They lost 27 million people uh, fighting the Nazis. They were not looking to fight. Um, but the there were problems with this U.S. plan for global hegemony over the capitalist world. And the biggest one was that the outposts outside of the United States, these big bastions of the U.S. empire where the countries were more wealthy and were allies to the capitalist cause, which is uh, Western Europe and East it, places in East Asia, especially Japan, was going to be built up and folded into the U.S. You know, the U.S. empire. Also, um, Taiwan after the U.S.-backed nationalists have to flee China in 1949. They they just hold up on Taiwan and uh, South Korea later, and then Singapore and Hong Kong. Like these are the countries that are brought in, wanting, and they need to be able to contribute to or participate in the U.S. economy. But the problem was they didn't really have, the U.S. had so much industry and could outcompete all these countries in the production of pretty much everything you'd want to trade internationally that these countries would not be able to earn dollars. And this is the dollar gap. It's written about in NSC 68. And then when the Marshall Fund ran out, it was already a problem even when the Marshall Fund was going, but when it was going to run out in the early 1950s, this was going to be a huge problem for the planners of the U.S. Uh, empire. All of those Wall Street people, the Council on Foreign Relations, who decided how the U.S. empire should be run, they didn't have a plan for this. And so they, they have to grapple with it. What could po How could you possibly allow? Because the, the Amer American Congress would not have been in favor of just giving money to these people, no strings attached, just so they could buy American goods. But if they did not find a way for Western Europe and East Asia to be able to earn dollars, uh, then this dollar gap would cause a crisis. And the crisis was, as they saw it, um, neutrality. So this was what they were most worried about. So so how did the U.S. make up for this problem of, of the, do the dollar gap and this trade imbalances, especially because it needed to support these these countries that became its allies or proxies in the cold war i, I should point out by the way that pretty much all of them were military dictatorships you know now the u.s portrays taiwan which is part of china and south korea and singapore and these countries as like maybe not singapore so much but the others as like democratic models japan but uh many of them were military dictatorships so anyway the point is how, how did the u.s make up for the dollar gap well, they needed to potentially, you could still manage the economy and have the U.S. participate in the international economy without trying to artificially solve this dollar gap problem. It would just mean that there would be less trade between the U.S. and Western Europe. And in order to keep the U.S. economy from you know, slumping or drastically suffering a downturn, you could have an increase in domestic consumption. You could try to restructure the uh, U.S. industry to support domestic cons cons uh, consumption and the raising of living standards uh, in the United States. 
This is a very similar predicament to what the U.S. faced at, in the late 1800s. With the closing of the frontier, uh, you have these economic problems that couldn't be solved just by allowing further Western expansion of like a, a surplus kind of immiserated population or, or a population that wasn't really faring well under the Gilded Age capitalism. They could always go to the West until they couldn't anymore, until the West was pretty much settled and the frontier was closed. And at that point, there were voices calling for you know, moves in a populist or socialist direction. And uh, they lost out to imperialist voices in the, the, in the Spanish-American War uh, as, as a result of this. Uh, the U.S. annexation of Hawaii stems from this commercially-minded imperialist segment of U.S. capitalism. So they weren't going to go for that again in the Cold War. So do you want to boost domestic consumption and increase the strength of labor and have America develop in a more socialist direction? Or do you want to have a, an empire overseas to secure external markets and resources? They went for the latter. So to create a world order in the national interest of the United States, the CFR, Council on Foreign Relations, when they carried out their War and Peace Studies project, they wrote about this in the War and Peace Studies project, they wrote, the U.S. would need unrestricted access to Asian raw materials and markets and to Western European markets, deemed essential because two-thirds of U.S. trade was outside of the Western Hemisphere. Okay, now you could have had the need for these export markets negated by allowing for public ownership of these essential productive foundational sectors of the U.S. economy combined with some democratically organized planning to ensure employment and decent consumption for everyone. That would have been one way to do it. That would have been more along the lines of what Henry Wallace wanted to do. But this would have been uh, a non-starter for the CFR because uh, as two of the best uh, chroniclers of this time period write and point out, every ruling set of elites uh, defines the national interest as the preservation of the existing set of economic, social, and political relationships and of their own rule. The national interest in a capitalist society is little more than the interest of its upper class. And that is how things played out during this time period. So because of the U.S. not wanting a socialist uh, uh, project and economy at home, uh, and the because of the enormous profits that there were to be made, through international imperialism, all those things together led to the U.S. going in an imperialist direction rather than a more progressive direction as Henry Wallace and others would have preferred. Right. And so on, on that sort of angle of alternatives to domestic consumption, I, I think it's important to note, one, that at this point in time, uh, the, the, the Federal Reserve is really subordinated to the Treasury. And that really takes a turn in the 50s and leads to kind of the post Bretton Woods system. We've talked about that a little bit, bit before, but where those roots really begin is that the Fed agrees to a, a, a fixed rate for treasury debt. And so that is essentially just holding up this entire uh, debt creation system that leads to foreign markets that need to, uh, you know, basically foreign central banks have to change the way that they go about their reserves. It turns the dollar into this sort of primary position. But it all begins with the open question of, is the U.S. going to take a more sort of populist turn? Is there potential for a for a producer's republic? And that was not fully off the table, at least in like the public political imagination. Um, but 
at the same time, like banks are are lacking speculative markets. We see the rise of modern corporate finance, and uh, and that's able to sort of create just this massive uh, liquidity boom that builds a American financial system that's able to reach its arms out across the world. Because in the interwar period, it just it lacked the ability to fully sort of integrate um, a U.S. led system in in that way. And why that's important is that you're you're talking about the fall of these alternatives, the the hopes for something of more populist, of of a of like I said, a producers' republic, get dashed on the fact that this system is able to using all of the surplus from this like a, a essentially imperial surplus, all of the free markets that we open up and we use all of these raw materials sold cheaply to us from Asia, from Latin America, from Africa. Uh, is specifically able to create this extra wealth that can be passed down to workers, you know, not you know in in as massive dividends or something, but enough to create a ethic of consumerism over all else. And so you see this rise of like a cosmology, all built on private consumption, on home ownership, and and essentially just making the interests of U.S. workers integrated with empire, and. I think that's a really important turning point here in terms of talking about the fall of any hope for an alternative. It, it ends at the point when the system is able to integrate them in and make their interests align. And that is able to uh, create the sort of public support for a Cold War uh, that you really wouldn't see otherwise. So how does this dollar gap situation exacerbate the Cold War and then lead to the military spending buildup that we see across the, uh, across the post-war period? Well, there is a prequel to the uh, adoption of NSC 68 as uh, official U.S. policy. And that prequel is the 1948 crisis in the U.S. aerospace industry, uh, which was also tied to the pinnacle of the U.S. corporate overworld. So it wasn't just these big aerospace manufacturers, but the fact that they were connected to uh, the pillars of of high finance in the United States. But under world, during World War II, these companies enjoyed massive profits. The US government invested a whole lot of money in these private corporations, uh, public money, but the, the profits were private. So Boeing, for example, had a 377% profit margin on its private investment between 1941 and 1945. Private profits publicly subsidized. Um, Scoop Jackson, this creates, you know, a, a class of very politically influential people, and it even changes the political makeup of different regions in the United States. For example, Scoop Jackson, senator from Washington state, uh, the father, sometimes credited as being the father of the neocons, he was a Democrat, Henry Jackson, uh, he sometimes called the little senator from Boeing. Okay, because Boeing was the big uh, backer of his and the, this huge employer in Washington State. So these are the, these firms are important themselves, but they're also connected to the top of the Wall Street power structure. In particular, in the in this case, Chase Bank was the largest investment bank in the world at the time. It was acquired by John D. Rockefeller in 1930. So it's a it's a Rockefeller bank. This is the case even in the Seven late 70s with um, David Rockefeller and the Shaw's billions of dollars in Chase Manhattan Bank. Um, but back during this time period, uh, Chase's stake in aerospace 
was so big that the industry's troubles were posing a serious threat to the bank's solvency, just like the Shaw's money in the late 1970s was uh, a threat to uh, Chase Manhattan if it were to be withdrawn. Okay, and so this has a, this impacts the way that that all goes down decades later. But in this case, it's you know the aerospace industry tanks. It could uh, potentially make Chase insolvent, or at least uh, you know really damage its bottom line. So enter this guy named Winthrop Aldrich, chairman of Chase and brother-in-law to John D. Rockefeller. Um, he was also a friend of the Secretary of Defense, James Forrestal, uh, a guy who had previously been the president of Wall Street's illustrious Dylan Reed and Company Investment Bank. Uh, and, you know, Dylan Reed people were also the people behind the creation of the CIA, or some of them were. And uh, Aldrich's connections, Aldrich, this guy, this Chase, Chase Bank guy and Rockefeller, uh, you know, consigliere, um, his connections had led to his being appointed to the chair of uh, the president's committee for financing foreign trade. Um, now, in this context, you should keep in mind that 1948 secretary of the Air Force sent a letter to Aldrich asking him to help, saying the problem is how do we get the money to get what we want? here to you know save the industry any advice that you could give us would be appreciated um and so for the air force to be able to get what they wanted to would mean if you did that you would be boosting the aerospace industry which would also boost and protect chase manhattan from suffering these losses because there was a huge decline in profitability for the aerospace industry after world war ii there just wasn't enough domestic aviation you know demand to support this industry so this is all laid out in a book by frank Kofsky. Uh, called Harry Truman and the War Scare of 1948, a successful campaign to deceive the nation. And the way that they solved this problem is Harry Truman, uh, Secretary of Defense James Forrestal, and Secretary of State George Marshall collaborated in 1948 to contrive a war scare that would save the U.S. aerospace industry. So by opportunistically misinterpreting and mischaracterizing events in Czechoslovakia, Finland, and Berlin, the three men, uh, and this is how Kofsky describes it, employed deceit and duplicity to convey the deliberately misleading impression that the USSR was poised to invade Western Europe at a moment's notice. And so this was how they solved that, that, that problem in 1948, which was a smaller problem, but a related one. And, and what they do to solve this problem is instructive you know, going forward. Yeah, I mean, age-old tactic, uh, threaten that there could be a war. I don't know if either of you guys have seen Wag the Dog, the movie where, uh, you know, all these PR hacks create this fake war with Albania to help a president win re-election to distract from a sex scandal. So, I mean, uh, obviously that that's a fictional account, but we know this is an age-old tactic. So, I didn't even know about this history of the, the, uh, the well, clearly everyone knows that with McCarthyism and the Red Scare, there was an attempt to portray the USSR as a so-called threat. But I didn't know of, of this particular case involving the aerospace industry and, you know, this racket to try to inflate the supposed threat in order to save the industry. Did this end up working? What happened after? It did. Uh, in 1948, the federal government intervened to reverse the industry's fortunes. Uh, but this would only be a stopgap measure. It's a it's a prequel to the events of 1949, which were followed by the drafting of NSC 68 in 1950. 
Uh, this Kofsky book was recommended to me years ago uh, when Dan Ellsberg uh, flew into Philly and uh, to speak at my at the high school I was working at. And I, I picked him up at the airport. We got to hang out for uh, a better part of a week between Philly and uh, in Bucks County. And we went to Swarthmore for an event there. It was it was very cool. But he we talked about this book and then I called him uh, maybe a year or so later and because I couldn't remember the name of it. And then he gave it to me um, and, and I went and looked more into it. And I was like, well, this is actually really amazing. Um, but the the way that these guys handled the crisis in 1948 solved the problem of the aerospace industry. It got some money spent to uh, you know, help them rearm, but it was uh, just sort of a shot in the arm. It wasn't something that was going to put them on a totally different footing. The real, the, the bigger problem was the dollar gap in Europe. And this was a problem uh, much stickier than just the issue of the aerospace industry. And the way that this gets tackled is in a National Security Council study uh, written in 1950 called NSC 68. And it's written by Paul Nitza, whose boss is Dean Acheson, you know, one of the top deep state people uh, of this of this entire era. Uh, Paul Nitza was also a protege of Forrestal, so he is connected to the, you know, the, the real top of the uh, leg men, the power elite in the United States, sort of leg men for the oligarchy, sort of deep state functionaries. Um, the conventional wisdom about NSC 68 and about 1949 and, you know, the, the um, Red Scare that, comes out of this is that the USSR getting the atomic bomb and then the, the, the communists winning the civil war in China, that these were really the catalysts for NSC 68. And then that the Korean war led to the adoption of NSC 68. But I think that those were pretexts of convenience, which collectively served as a, like a cover story to allow the U S establishment, the sort of Imperial, you know, uh, mandarins of the united states to achieve the express desired ends that they lay out um so it, it just is they had they had problems that would that required something like nsc 68 to be able to solve and without it they wouldn't have been able to do it so these other areas though i'm sure they were not happy about the soviets getting the bomb or the inevitable victory of the chinese communists these weren't really the reasons for uh, in SC 68, they were more like pretexts of convenience. And NSC 68 does not just call for a massive rearmament. It also has a relevance for the kind of mentality that, that came to uh, prevail in the U.S. national security state, uh, which is relevant to the state of exception. Okay, so there's one passage here in NSC 68 that I want to read that, that, that is relevant to much of the subject matter of this book. And they write, the authors of NSC 68 write, the integrity of our system will not be jeopardized by any measures, covert or overt, violent or nonviolent, which serve the purposes of frustrating the Kremlin design, nor does the necessity, necessity for conducting ourselves so as to affirm our values in action as well as words forbid such measures. So this is kind of a, just a turgid way of saying this threat is so monumental and, and terrifying that whatever we do to fight the Soviets is basically acceptable. We can't really be too worried about trying to live our values and so on. 
because this is such a, a, a drastic dire threat. This is more of an assertion that there is a terrible emergency and the state of exception is warranted. That's the implicit uh, message here. And it's not, it's, it's almost explicit. Uh, and this is, this is relevant to all of the crimes that get sort of committed as a matter of course by the U.S. empire, you know, in this time period, starting in this time period. Yeah, Aaron, before you go on, I, I know you, you have a few thoughts you want to continue expanding on here, but I think it's also worth us emphasizing that this is one of the first major uh, documents, or at least my understanding is it's one of the first major documents released by the National Security Council after it was created in 1947 with the National Security Act, because a lot of people don't know that when the CIA was created and the NSA were created in 47 with the National Security Act. It also created the National Security Council. So this is this is part of this entire apparatus that was built by Truman. And NSC 68 was published in 1950. So it was very early in in, you know, just three years into this new apparatus of the national security state. And we see that so so early on, they're already drastically expanding the amount of authority that it has. Right. I mean, they are they are planning grand strategy here in a in a with a sort of militarized bureaucracy um, with enormous ramifications for not just, you know, the, the military, but they're basically wanting to restructure the whole political economy of the United States and of uh, the rest of the so-called free world. So this is this is extremely ambitious and they more or less pull it off. Um, even though the I, the justifications for it were largely exaggerated, and people, when you the the things that have come out over the years show that the people behind it even knew that a lot of this wasn't quite you know accurate. For example, Paul Nitsa at, in late 1949 argued nothing about the Soviets' moves indicates that Moscow is preparing to launch in the near future an all-out military attack on the West. Okay, because why would they? There's nuclear weapons. They've had enough of war. They have enough resources. What do they really need it for? You know, they don't even really need East Europe in a normal imperial sense as a as a place to you know plunder and exploit. And you can argue that the Soviet Union exercised a kind of imperialism over Eastern Europe, uh, you know, because they did dominate those countries. But the rationale would would seem to be of geopolitical security, that these are uh, ge these are spaces that were used to invade the Soviet Union in the past. And so they, they needed, they didn't want to have hostile regimes in, the, in those countries, just like Ukraine today, right, which we can come back to later. But this is, this was the situation at the time. And people like, uh, people like Nitsa knew that. Even th there's another quote here from, um, this one's from George Kennan, the containment father. And he writes, the damage we should be able to do in the Soviet Union is not affected by whether the Russians have the bombs themselves or not. Russia has only recently been through a tremendously destructive war. The Soviet economy has far less that it can afford to lose than we have. And the Soviet leaders will not inaugurate a type of warfare bound to lead to great destruction within their country. So Kennan, the guy who created containment and sent the long telegram and you know helped put the U.S. on this war footing, is still at least sober in this assessment. He points out there's no, it doesn't really, they're getting the bomb doesn't change anything. So it's not, they're not interested in invading Western Europe and they're getting the bomb doesn't change anything. This is coming from some of the top, you know, Cold War thinkers in the United States. 
uh, and yet NSC 68 is still needed. And why is this? Well, I mean, in general, the whole global communist meta-conspiracy theory that they would cite to justify all sorts of repression and you know, uh, beefing up of the, of the war machine, it's absurd given that Soviets, again, lost almost 27 million people compared to America's losing 400,000 altogether in World War II. Uh, all that Soviet territory, so much of it had been destroyed by Nazi invaders. And then with the finale of the, of the war, the U.S. Uh, launches a gratuitous massacre with atomic weapons that was there to intimidate the Soviet Union to show them, hey, we have the bomb. Okay, so the Soviets are not, you know, maniacs uh, who have no, you know, concern for their own security. They didn't want to fight the West for, for their desire to avoid fighting the West was really overdetermined by a number of things. And U.S. policymakers knew it, but they still had to depict the Soviet Union as a threat. But in NSC 68, because it's not really intended for public consumption, as crazy as they are in passages of, of NSC 68, they kind of, if you pay attention to it, they sort of belie the urgency that they're trying to project here by making some honest statements about the economic side of it. So for example, they write, if neutrality were to happen in Germany, the effect upon Western Europe and eventually upon us might be catastrophic. Okay, what would that be? Neutrality. I mean, they weren't going, they already are saying they're not going to invade. What does that mean? It means trading, trade between Soviet Union and Germany, okay? If you had this non-militarized kind of relationship between the West, Western Europe and the Soviet Union, then the Soviet Union doesn't need to, uh, you know, spend vast amounts of its economic surplus on a war machine, and they can potentially prosper by selling the raw materials that, the, that, that Russia has so much of, uh, selling those to German industry, which is, actually, is also very strong. So this, was, this prospect was terrifying, to the people running the, the U.S. empire. They wanted to control these economies. Additionally, you have labor militancy in the United States. You know, it was to the point that they passed Taft-Hartley in 1947 to crack down on the militancy of labor unions, and they also require uh, union officers to sign anti-communist affidavits these, this get, gets worse in 48 and 49 with an economic slump that exacerbates the, the problems of labor and labor's unhappiness with the status quo. It makes social And these economic slumps make socialist arguments more threatening. So they have to figure out, how do we do all these things? How do we avoid economic slump? How do we uh, bring Europe, how do we solve the problem of this dollar gap without allowing Europe to become neutral and to trade with the Soviet Union? Soviet Union is if the Soviet Union is able to trade freely with other industrialized countries, even if America is not trading with it that much, just trading with Western Europe, uh, which and its sort of advanced capitalist, you know, industrialized economies, this could allow for the Soviet Union to develop and prosper economically. This trade is beneficial for countries, and being cut off from trade, like for example, Cuba is, is a very difficult thing for a country to handle. Uh, so this was what they had feared, the idea that you might have uh, a Europe that is friendly with the Soviet Union. Maybe they move even themselves toward more socialist models because they see uh, Soviet Union actually doing okay under socialism and they trade with the Soviet Union. So why do they have to have all of this you know, free market capitalism when you might be able to solve some of these problems with socialist institutions? These things terrified U.S. policymakers.
Yeah, on that labor angle, um, I, I think, and without doing kind of just stock psychoanalysis here, like we've talked about the sort of the elite psyche in this, and the 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 threat of labor unrest is a lot more close to home. But I think there's sort of a displacement where maybe the discomfort that comes out of that is able to be sort of projected out onto the international stage and give an excuse to cement your power by, you know, whether you're consciously or not. I think some of the buy-in among elites, though, comes from some amount of insecurity domestically that is able to sort of be poured out into something more productive than just trying to crack down on labor. Because like you're saying, the, the like any kind of uh, pushback domestically with labor, uh, you know, in terms of like cl open class warfare tends to radicalize more people than, more than anything. And, uh, and, and also just the sort of present threat of any time that you have a slump, like you're saying, uh, it creates more unrest and it creates more uh, comfort with socialist options at the same time while also being convenient for them. Like we're seeing today, like creating a a, a reserve army of unemployed workers is also a useful thing for them. And, and at the time, uh, it is still more plausible to keep labor costs low for, uh, before the 70s strike wave. So we're in a very different sort of uh, economic realm at this point than what we understand as sort of the, the elite mind today. But this also, as a response domestically, at least on the labor point, gives rise to what Mike Davis has called like the barren marriage of, of the labor movement. But that's not the only problem they have to deal with. So how does NSC 68 and then what C. Wright Mills called the privately incorporated permanent war economy? So that combination there, how, how is that able to solve these problems? Well, C. Wright Mills is the guy who in the 1950s, without the documents at hand, was, was able to suss out much of this in the way that he writes about the military. He writes that this is their answer for everything. It's the answer to all these problems. Uh, it's, it's permanent war. But of course, it's it's dangerous and insane because this all this preparation for war is going to be the cause of World War III. Uh, and he was proven largely correct, except by a miracle where they avoided a war during the Cuban Missile Crisis. But NSC 68 and the permanent, privately incorporated permanent war economy that it created solved these problems. Um, U.S. actions during this time period saved the U.S. aerospace industry and its financiers. It ended the post-war economic slump. It served to stave off the impending threat of Western European neutrality. And it made labor weaker by elevating anti-communism to basically the status of state religion uh, and it also gave rise to this military industrial complex. So it was a, a you created a, a sort of, you know, Frankenstein of sorts that would be at, from that point forward would seek to perpetuate itself because it would make so much money uh, and profits that it would be able to take, you know, a portion of those profits and put it into lobbying and manipulating politics and society to perpetuate itself. So besides the sort of top down imperatives of the of the elites to create this economy, which which led to the creation of the the permanently the permanent war economy, the privately incorporated permanent war economy. You have the fact that it creates this military industrial complex itself, which is going to seek those same ends, but even more so, and uh, you know on forever. So this the dollar gap in the U.S. Uh, for or as the U.S. saw it, you know it it led to. This, this solution by the U.S., uh, big and, and vastly increased U.S. military spending leads to balance of payments deficits, which mean there are more dollars overseas. 
okay, and this deficit spending is what's putting, you know, foreign, uh, all this military spending, putting more money into uh, foreign central banks because the U.S. is running big deficits. And this creates a, a gold gap. So in a way, these guys are getting, it, it's, but you're able to uh, justify to Congress all of this spending because it's depicted in Cold War terms. So the, it wouldn't have been as easy to get domestic spending this way, but maybe you could have if labor agitated enough and there wasn't an alternative, but the military thing becomes a solution. So it doesn't even have to come to that. Uh, the the US, it, it sacrifices the U.S. gold position to be able to do this. And I'm sorry to cut you off, just to kind of reiterate what we were talking about earlier of the dollar recycling system, because I, I think it's it's important to drill home and it's a little complex, especially if you're not kind of versed in econ. But specifically, this balance of payments issue is actually uh, the U.S. is abusing its position with dollar primacy or dollar hegemony, um, where the dollar is becoming the reserve currency. And it's also taking advantage of the fact that there has to be an international market for government debt because there's just so much of it to go around. People have to start buying treasury bonds, and that's how we get the fall of Bretton Woods. But in order to sort of peg your currency to the U.S. dollar uh, as a part of Bretton Woods and have like a stable foreign exchange rate, central banks abroad have to have these massive reserves on hand in order to keep the, those exchange rates in, you know, sort of in order or stable. And so that creates this system where the U.S. is, is able to essentially just outsource the cost of their military empire onto the rest of the world, uh, but it's still destabilizing. And that's why you have the run-up to, to Nixon formally ending Bretton Woods, is that it slowly starts to erode uh, the the stability of the financial system because there's so much liquidity coming out and so much just massive amounts of debt being created that it's destabilizing the U.S.'s U.S. dollar's role as a as a sort of measure of value across the entire globe because they're so busy abusing that status for the ends of empire. Yeah, this is a manageable issue for a while, and it's not so much a recycling system for a while until you have the end of Bretton Woods. And what I what I mean by that is that treasury debt was convertible, or you know, dollars were convertible to gold, and that's why the U.S. was losing gold, you know, month after month because. Uh, and basically, this continues all the way up until I believe the last months of Kennedy's life, because Kennedy was actually trying to reverse this policy which to my mind is a very underexplored aspect uh, of all of the, uh, you know, background to the Kennedy assassination. But at this, when the U.S. has the dollar still tethered to gold, so it's like one thirty-fifth an ounce of, uh, for a dollar, you know, like $35 to an ounce, right? That's the, what Bretton Woods puts gold value at. Um, they're they're basically instead of recycling it, countries can ask for gold for their their dollars, uh, and this is so the U.S. privilege at this point is not as abusable as it would be after Bretton Woods falls in 1971. But I don't want to get too far ahead in this particular story. Um, the issue at for at the time was to solve the dollar gap problem because the people running things were not so worried about the U.S financial position in terms of the gold position. They don't, I mean, this is sort of similar to today, like these guys that talk about shrinking the federal government to where you can drown it in the in the bathtub. These are people who don't really care about the uh, solvency of the 
of the federal government and the financial security of the U.S. as a nation state because their class interests trump any kind of on you know real conception of the national interest. Like they basically replace their own class interests with the national interest uh, to the extent that they can. And so they didn't. It was really going to be damaging the U.S. gold position by doing this, but it didn't matter because they had things on their mind, which were establishing a, a an international system that would allow them the maximum amount of uh, power and wealth. And so, if the if that means sacrificing the the U.S. gold position, uh, they would they didn't mind doing that. And the way that this worked was you have NATO countries spending money on weapons. Uh, sometimes to the U.S., so they're sometimes selling things to the U.S. because the U.S. is going to need, uh, you know, different materials and things to support this huge war machine. And it's a way to deal with economic slump in a centralized, through centralized management of the economy, uh, but in a, the least socialist way possible, okay? Because it's you're basically creating money or creating weapons, uh, that are not hopefully not going to be used. Most of them, a lot of bombers and so on get moth mothballed and, and they just keep manufacturing these things. It's a never ending kind of a thing. Uh, it's also a huge boost to the U S oil industry and the steel industry. Uh, and therefore it's a huge boost to U S finance because finance has to support all of these huge corporate structures. Uh, and it all leads, it leads to the virtual cutting off of, US, of trade between the West and the USSR. And the, the Soviet Union was happy to have some amount of economic integration between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. It wasn't the Soviet position to want to be to go for autarky. It gets foisted on them by the US, uh, who, who, for geopolitical reasons, does not want the Soviet Union to be integrated into the world economy they're trying to build. Uh, for labor in the U.S., which is the more progressive, obviously, segment of the of the U.S. society, uh, they become more anti-communist. They become tied to the war economy and invested in the war economy, and it stabilizes U.S. prosperity and is a way to keep uh, you know this menacing army of unemployed from getting too menacing. Uh, it, it becomes such a pillar of the U.S. economy that George Kennan has this quote um, from 1987. So here's, a, again, the guy that like founded containment, you can argue, or he's often credited for that, really an acolyte of Dean Acheson. But he wrote um, that were the Soviet Union to sink tomorrow under the waters of the ocean, the American military industrial complex would have to remain substantially unchanged until some other adversary could be invented. Anything else would be an unacceptable shock to the American economy. He says this in 1987, Soviet Union collapses a few years later. And there's this, this talk in the 90s of winding down the military industrial complex, enjoying a peace dividend, cutting military budgets. This freaks out a lot of the neoconservatives. You get the project for a new American century and other people wanting a war with Iraq. And, uh, you know, eventually you get the global war on terror. And so the military industrial complex still exists in the United States. That's the, the key takeaway uh, because it's, it's a pillar of this, of the empire and especially the empire's management of the domestic political economy. So we're going to turn now, uh, toward George Orwell, who you talk about in this chapter of the book and, uh, and Ben's laughing. I do want to, for the court stenographers, and by that, I mean the YouTube comments, uh, Ben has registered 
his hatred of George Orwell. I have my own personal feelings, and th this is not an endorsement of George Orwell's anti-communism. I want to put that out there right at the start when we talk about this. Well, yeah, and I'll just, I just because you mentioned, I, I have to say now that, uh, you know, it's not an irrational hatred. I mean, George Orwell was actually spying on behalf of the the British state, spying on leftists, spying on communists. He made a list of communists and so-called fellow travelers for the IRD, which is the British government's anti-communist propaganda wing. So uh, it's pretty ironic. And, and of course, we know the CIA helped uh, popularize his books through the, the Congress of Cultural Freedom. We know that the CIA funded the cartoon um, movie version of Animal Farm. But yeah, I mean, go go ahead anyway. I just <laughs> I had to mention that. I figured we had to put it out there because uh, I mean, putting out like secret lists or, or lists of, of dissidents for the secret police is what I, I think a lazy writer would call Orwellian, uh, yeah. which is yeah. just a, a, a trope that is so exhausting. And so Aaron, to his credit, does not use doesn't just say, oh, the deep state's very Orwellian. I think I would have gotten very mad at the, at the book if that well, was. Well, the deep state the, is very Orwellian. It in, is. In the sense that ironically, uh, Orwell was working with the deep state. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So it, it, that's not, though, the, the use. So, Aaron, like, where did you find uh, the use value here for 1984 and for Orwell's work in terms of understanding this, uh, the permanent war economy? Well, you know, Orwell is an interesting guy. Uh, he's not someone that I think it should be anyone's North Star for trying to figure out history and politics. When he said, I, I think it's good when he writes good things. And I think it's not helpful when he writes, you know, stuff that's dumb. So I'm not really looking to explore his anti-communism, which I, I, I find kind of like shallow and uh, kind of silly and kind of uniquely British, uh, you know, kind of born of a British aloofness and, and so on and smugness. Forget all of that. But his critique of liberalism uh, in the war at wartime is, I think, useful. And, and it, additionally, he makes comments that are uh, very much... Um, or he his he has passages in 1984 that are extremely relevant to this. One of the best, I think, passages in literature that that deal with this kind of an issue. It's similar to ideas that would be expressed in C. Wright Mills's work, but uh, it's it's in a you know because it's it's literary and so it's written in ways that are uh, maybe more punchy, perhaps. Uh, he wrote that the aim of war is to use up in an advanced, you know, capitalist society, the aim of war is to use up production without raising living standards. Uh, and that there's a historical problem for elites uh, that arises with the invention of machines in general. Okay. Because as Henry Wallace was pointing out in the U S you know, uh, in the new deal years, problems of material production have mostly been solved. We can produce enough uh, how you know material to build housing and roads and food for for everyone we can basically eliminate material deprivation at least in the united states and eventually with the, to the rest of the world if they wanted to if they wanted to do that but this is a problem for elites um and this that they don't really want to eliminate these things it's not in their advantage to have living standards so high and people so comfortable because they can um, they can they can participate more in life and have other concerns rather than just material concerns. 
and just trying to survive, which is not, it's not ideal for capitalists to have that kind of society. You have more power if people are kind of desperate and have to be, uh, you know, have to be employed to, to work or to survive. So this is a problem with the machine and the, uh, the war and, and can, the war machine can allow for economic activity to keep everything running, but without really raising people's living standards more than they want. Now this can kind of be done, not just with the, you know, war production, but with finance. I mean, when you think of the role of finance in making everybody really poor in the United States, it's, uh, it's really something. People would argue that like, if you did these things, if you try to address these issues, it would be cause all of this inflation. But that argument is kind of crazy because think of how expensive it is to employ everyone in the United States when healthcare is so expensive or when housing is so expensive or when student loans are so expensive. Like th these actually add enormous, like by financializing everything, you're really, you know, putting uh, enormous burdens on people in a way that it's like it's decreasing their material security on purpose. You're basically making them have to pay all of these rich people just to be able to live uh, a decent life at all. So this is a this is something that you see in the way we structure our society still besides the military production. Yeah, Aaron, the, the point on precarity there, it's like you don't even need the material deprivation. What you're saying is like the financial system, things like like health insurance keeps even a Wall Street banker. You can be making a million dollars a year and live in Manhattan and you're still one bad break away from being out on the street or being driven to bankruptcy by by a, a, an illness or by your child's illness. And that is a way to let people live in sort of material splendor, that, that, that they're wealthy, they're in the top 0.1% of wealth on earth, and they still get to sort of have that imposed on them while still agreeing with the system because they, they like materially benefit in a way where, of course, they're gonna side with the ruling elite. They are the ruling elite, but they also get the sort of the coercive aspects put on them at the same exact time. And that's sort of the, the, like the innovation of a, of a financial system in this way. Yeah, and I mean, they they in the United States, they believed you had classical economists, you know, in the early parts of the 20th century, in the late 1800s, that were saying, you know, that you could by looking to crack down on rent seeking, you know, by in, in the way the classical economics would recommend, you could, uh, and the way technology was advancing, you could really solve all of these problems, uh, economic problems, and live in an age of abundance. But that never happens. Uh, this this golden age never arises in the United States. People like Henry Wallace and others wanted the U.S. to be a, a land of economic, you know, uh, of plenty. And this never comes to pass. You have this artificial scarcity that is maintained. Uh, and this is the military industrial complex is one way to, to do it, um, even as it also provides some like stability. So you don't have them entering any sort of depression. You can even have an economic boom for a number of decades, which the U.S. did enjoy after the war, uh, in part because of military spending. But it's um, it's very much dependent upon the imperial posture towards the world. And so th there was never the uh, intention of the real leadership in the United States to create a prosperous, secure society where human technology is used to maximum uh, effect in terms of improving uh, living standards in the United States. And uh, that to that point of uh, 
of the classical economists, people like David Ricardo, who I, I was unfortunately a, an econ undergrad, and the, pretty much one of the main things that you learn about trade theory is this idea of comparative advantage. And Ricardo is really like the poster child of a lot of like trade economic theory. And in reality, what his theory was on in terms of like the the progression of an economy is not all you know it's a, it's a different form of this than marx but he still sees the capitalist economy as leading to something called a stationary state as a result of rentier income and so uh, like what that's based around is this idea uh, of and you bring up michael hudson who's a, a regular and multipolarista uh talking about that rent economic rent is quote income that has no counterpart in necessary cost of production and so when someone like milton friedman says oh there's no such thing as a free lunch there very much is a, a such thing as a free lunch, but it's it's uh, it's taken by the elites. It's it's taken by rentier capital, and so they are deriving and pulling income out of the economy. That, as Ricardo, I think, correctly pointed out, even though we haven't gotten to that point, economic rent actually pulls profit away from productive capitalists. Not saying that in a, in a good sense at all, but. It, it disincentivizes them from increasing output and by extension, having any sort of trickle down to the workers, because all of this sort of in-between area that is used as profit that either trickles back down in wages or to new you know, investment, all that growth goes away because everything is getting pulled off and siphoned off into this unproductive rentier economy. And so I, I think you make this point by way of Hudson, but this is a really important thing about sort of debunking the the uh, the myths of mainstream economics that would tell us that um, that this isn't how the world works, that that there's some idea of a quote unquote free market. When we talk about Smith or Ricardo or Mill talking about a quote unquote free market, it's really an economy free of rentier capital, not of, uh, you know, just lack of regulation or, or whatever it even means at this point, because that, that has never existed. It's, a, it's always been uh, sort of centralized and, and had this coercive aspect all the way down and uh, even in the like so-called free trade periods. So that's always been a, a myth. But um, as you talked about with this question of sort of using war to destroy uh, destroy surplus, why wouldn't elites then want to usher in a, a, a sort of a golden age of civilization? Right. If we look at things like Star Trek, you know, where they have solved the problems of material, you know, uh, deprivation and the argument put forward by the people that create that show and other sort of related ones is that this would uh, allow for humans to pursue, you know, doing meaningful things with their lives, exploring the universe and, and so on, rather than just being uh, looking for a way to be exploited, which is what capitalism demands. You know, it's like the joke is the only thing worse than being exploited by capitalism is not being exploited by capitalism. Okay, or as the uh, right-wing um, redeemers in Reconstruction Era said in the South, the tune ain't going to be 40 acres and a mule. It's going to be work, inward, or starve. Okay, and that is the mentality of, uh, of, of capitalists. They would not, they do not want a, a world where there's enough uh, material security for everyone that they don't have to like go and try to work to make money for someone who has, you know, who owns a business. Okay. So uh, this is what, this is how Orwell writes about it. And it's, it's pretty punchy and I think on point. 
He says, for if leisure and security were enjoyed by all alike, the great mass of human beings who are normally stupefied by poverty would become literate and would learn to think for themselves. And when once they had done this, they would sooner or later realize that the privileged minority had no function and they would sweep it away. In the long run, a hierarchical society was only possible on a basis of poverty and ignorance. So there I think Truman is, is or I'm sorry, there I think Orwell is on point. Yeah, and, and pivoting a little bit, getting back to the military-industrial complex, in, in this chapter here, we're, we're finishing up chapter six here, you have this very interesting quote in looking at how similar ruling classes are, elites are in different modes of production. I'm just going to read this quote because it's a very interesting point. Elites in every classical, feudal, and capitalist civilization have essentially the same job description. They work to produce their own hegemony over society. Their class interests, elite education, and vast wealth allow them to organize and overcome the collective action problems that overwhelm non-elites. And th this is interesting thinking in terms of the military-industrial complex. You can you can almost kind of think of it as kind of a new phase of capitalism, right? You ha you do have the emerge of finance capitalism, which is basically at the same time. So maybe you could say that finance capitalism is related to the military industrial complex, but how, how does the war economy, the permanent war economy fit into this, this model? Well, it keeps the wheels of industry turning. So the depression, which was brought about by, you know, elite malfeasance on multiple levels was not act was not good. They lost a lot of wealth and it was a little frightening for them. They feared communist revolution so much so that they backed uh, social democracy for a time in the U.S. in the form of the New Deal. Okay, so having the permanent war economy keeps the wheels of industry turning, but it also destroys material wealth, which might otherwise make the masses of people economically secure. Um, the the post-war decades were boom years for the most part. The kitchen debates in the U.S. were a part of the U of uh, propaganda, uh, Cold War propaganda. Kitchen debates were when uh, Nixon and Khrushchev were like looking at, at, at maybe models or, or you know, mock-ups or display uh, models of American kitchens with all of these fancy appliances that we kind of take for granted now, like a you know, toaster oven and a vacuum cleaner and electric blender and so on. And it was a way to say, look, Soviets, you guys don't have all these things in your kitchen now. This is probably a little insensitive considering that like, you know, less than 10 years earlier or, or about 10 years earlier, they were losing 27 million people. Uh, some of them, you know, starving to death, like the siege of Leningrad and other things like it seems a little insensitive to be boasting about your, uh, you know, your fancy mop and glow or whatever. But that's what they were doing. And it was a way to say like capitalism delivers the goods to people. OK, so this was not they weren't wanting to subject the U.S. to like Indonesia-style domination and exploitation and, and immiseration, you know, like the U.S. would do in, in places like in Indonesia, you know, under, under Suharto. Uh, but they were not wanting to have a, a prosperous country with institutions that were not controlled by capitalist powers. So this, uh, and this PR part of the U.S. is, is, the propaganda part of it, it also helps to explain civil rights in this same area era. Unfortunately, um, the U.S. was did not like the fact that 
the Jim Crow regime in the South made the U.S. look bad to foreign in foreign countries where they wanted to uh, win people over, especially in places that were going to decolonize. They wanted them to come to the Western side, which was really to become neo-colonized. Yeah, they didn't want them to be thinking that the Soviet Union was better and that the U.S. was just more of a, a, a white supremacy, just like the Europeans. They wanted to be to uh, help with this and, and look better. And civil rights was hurting them, or the lack of civil rights was hurting them. And so the establishment supports civil rights. And between the brave and admirable activists and then the tippy top of the U.S. power elite, which controls the media, uh, they were able to get rid of Jim Crow, which we, we think is a good thing. But there is a you know, a deeper story there. Um, so Orwell was a little bit off in predicting that they wanted the people to be so just totally miserable and near destitution, but his bigger issues were right. Uh, he was correct, especially when we see the deep states uh, backlash in the 1970s, which leads to the Reagan revolution uh, and the shadow of which we've been living in ever since. So as we're wrapping up here today, what should we take away from the Truman years and the launch of the Cold War? Well, John Foster Dulles said uh, in a passage that's quoted, you know, ubiquitously, uh, he said, in order to bring a nation to support the burdens of maintaining great military establishments, it is necessary to create an emotional state akin to war psychology. There must be the portrayal of an external menace. Now, he would go on to be the Secretary of State under uh, Truman's successor, Dwight Eisenhower, but that is a good explanation for what happens during uh, the early years of the Cold War and how the military-industrial complex got established. As far as weighing in on Truman as a whole, last two paragraphs I'll read from the book, and I can put them on, on the screen here. For the corporate overworld, the utility of the Cold War was manifold. The military generated massive profits, Anti-communism served as a pretext for covert operations to ensure that decolonization became neo-colonialism. Domestically, anti-communism allowed for organized labor and the political left more broadly to be largely neutralized. And yet, the privately incorporated permanent war economy did not spell meager subsistence for the American people by and large. Labor unions were relegated to the middle levels of power with real decision-making taking place in the higher circles. Still, there was a large and growing middle class due in part to the business of military production. In the 1950s, it was part of U.S. propaganda to contrast high U.S. living standards with life in the Soviet Union, as evidenced by the kitchen debates between Nikita Khrushchev and Richard Nixon. While the immediate post-war years were characterized in part by economic slump, the 1950s were widely, if unevenly, prosperous, owing in part to the war machine. The military Keynesian foundations for the prosperous 1950s were laid by the administration of Harry S. Truman. But whatever might be said about Truman's New Deal sympathies, the facts remain that his administration massacred over 100,000 with atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, set off an arms race with the potential to end human civilization, started the Cold War, created the CIA, and brought the military industrial complex into existence. This is not to place too much emphasis on the man himself. Rather, it speaks to the nature of American society that prevailing forces would tragically select such a man for such a position at such a point in history. Very well said. That, that is a great note to end on. And we, it would be a good, a good place to just put a, an end to this episode. But I do want to ask you one other question, Aaron, just because 
we're going through chronologically here, talking about the history of the U.S. national security state, the military-industrial complex. I just want to kind of briefly uh, address contemporary politics and how this relates to politics right now. Because, of course, we're in a new Cold War, the second Cold War, and the adversaries in this new Cold War are basically the same, especially in this era that we're talking about leading up to the 1950s, right? Uh, the Soviet Union was allied with communist China, with the People's Republic of China at the time. This is before the Sino-Soviet split. And we know that these war planners, after the communists won the Chinese Civil War in 1949, that in the 1950s, these U.S. war planners when they were planning for a potential nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union, we know because of Daniel, Ellsberg, Daniel Ellsberg's book, The Doomsday Machine, that they set up the system so it would automatically launch nuclear missiles, not only in the Soviet Union, but also China. So for these war planners, China and Russia were, China and the Soviet Union at that time were joined at the hip. They were inseparable. And of course, in the 1960s, the late 1960s, that falls apart with the Sino-Soviet split. But anyway, the point is that now we see a situation that is in many ways similar. You know, people talk about how history doesn't repeat itself, but it echoes. And we see a lot of historical echoes right now. We see a clear Chinese-Russian alliance in February before Russia invaded Ukraine. In the first week of February, Putin met with Xi Jinping, the Chinese president, and they, they released this 6,000-word joint statement in this kind of manifesto. So... How what what kind of lessons do you draw from this era, the Truman era, to understand the U.S. kind of imperial designs today for the new Cold War against both China and Russia? Well, I think that you can look at the actual you know maps and look at geography and then trace that to what leading thinkers have put forward in the U.S. and the U.K. Um, I'll talk about. Uh, Halford McKinder, okay, he's a famous geopolitical theorist of the early 1900s uh, for Great Britain. And I have a map here with uh, that, that sort of shows his um, general theory, if you can put it in map form. He said, he talked about Eurasia as the world island, you know, the world island of Asia, Africa, and, the, and Europe, basically, okay, and he especially Eurasia is like the world island, but then some formulations would say, look, they're all one landmass because of Africa. So he sees the heartland as this area, most area, mostly, you know, of, of a, the middle part of Eurasia, which is mostly Russia, Tibet, Mongolia, and so on. He called that the heartland. And he said, who rules East Europe commands the heartland? Who rules the heartland commands the world island? Who rules the world island commands the world? Now, this gets put into practice by the British uh, strategists for the British Empire. But of course, they can't really control, take over Russia and control it. So the question is, how do you sort of negate the power, the potential power of all of these, this land and resources and, and all the human beings that live in these areas? Because they could potentially be a kind of unstoppable force if they were ever organized and bent on imperialism. So this, is, uh, this thinking has been influential in the United States. And it's, you see in the map that there's this outer, this area in the middle that gets called um, sometimes like the pivot area or the rimlands. And this is Eastern Europe and the, the Middle East and uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia can be described this way. So it's really, it ends up being this whole swath that borders the communist, the, the two big communist powers, uh, 
the People's during the Cold War, the People's Republic of China and the Soviet Union. So, and this traces back to it's very relevant to understanding today because the U.S. again, as with NSC sixty eight, is trying to quarantine Russia with all of these sanctions and so on, trying to stop economic integration between Russia and Western Europe, and this has relevance to World War. If you look at World War One, what the Germans were trying to do, which again really frightened British policymakers. And you can see this map here where they had planned to, uh, before World War II, had, most of it was completed, or sorry, before World War I, they had planned this, this railway from Berlin all the way down to Baghdad, as the name suggests. And there had been a lot of oil discovered, and it was becoming clear to industrialists that oil was the way of the future. And so this um, this railroad really threatened uh, Anglo, you know, British, the British Empire, because they're able to go across the Black Sea, you know, across the Dardanelles, Bosporus, whatever, uh, into Southwest Asia. And this would have been a way to connect Germany to the Middle Eastern oil, and it would have uh, been a workaround to the British control of the Suez Canal. And so it was horrifying, probably is a contributing factor to why World War I was fought, that it was the the British side was terrified of German industrial power and, and it being fueled by Middle Eastern oil. Likewise, they're concerned about German industrial power being fueled by Russian raw materials and Russian oil as well. So it's, it's really something to see how control of Germany uh, has played out as a major issue for American, for U.S. imperialists and going back to the British day, days. Now, there's a quote here from George Friedman who's the founder of Stratfor, a sort of private intelligence entity connected to, you know, spooks in Washington and so on. He spoke no, no, at these... No, no, the shadow CIA, people call yes, it. Yes, it's been called that. And uh, it's he spoke at the Chicago Council on Foreign Affairs, and he said, the primordial interest of the United States, over which for centuries we have fought wars, the first, the second, and Cold Wars, uh, First World Wars, he means, um, has been the relationship between Germany and Russia, because united there, they're the only force that could threaten us, and to make sure that that doesn't happen. And so it, this is relevant up to the present day. Um, the pivot to to Asia, you've seen recently, is also relevant to control of this world island. Um, you see here, this is from LA Progressive, uh, an article that they were, I think it's from a, it accompanies a William Blum article, maybe one of his last articles. But you see where there are these um, NATO ballistic ballistic missile systems right here uh, in Europe, for example, where these arrows are. Some of these are, and these are uh, in the present day. They are supposedly missile defense, but a those missile defense systems are not really useful except to possibly deter a second strike from Russia. Okay, they were put in Europe supposedly because of Iranian missiles and the threat they represented, but everybody knew at the time. That it was really about Russia, okay? And now Russia sees these things, and these these batteries, these missile batteries, can be nuclear weapons can be put into these batteries, right? They're not they. It's not like they can't be used to actually launch nukes at Russia. And the U.S. has a long history. Ellsberg puts this in his memoir as well of putting nuclear weapons in places where they're not supposed to be. They used to park um, ships and so on with nuclear weapons in Japan in violation of treaties and agreements that they'd signed with Japan. This is just, you can't take the U.S.'s word that they're not putting nukes in these places. So Russia understandably treats these as potential nuclear threats aimed at Russia. 
and they maintain a higher level of nuclear alert because of this, which makes it possible that there could be some sort of miscalculation that could kill us all. Uh, and, and there's all sorts of reasons to not engage in this kind of behavior, but the U.S. wants to for imperial imperialist reasons. Um, like, additionally, you have um, the the pipeline issue. Okay, you're talking about integration, economic transactions between um, Russia and Western Europe. Well, the this major crisis for uh, U.S. policymakers is the Nord Stream pipeline, the second one, especially, I guess they run in both places. I've sort of gotten some of these confused at some points in the past. I thought the Nord Stream was the one that went through Ukraine, that Nord Stream 2 was up here, but they're actually both up there, which makes sense. But they already put a lot of, they already transfer a lot of hydrocarbons through Ukraine pipelines. Also the Nord Stream 1 pipeline, which is shut down. Nord Stream 2 was supposed to come online right around the time that the Ukraine war starts. And this seems to be the longer term solution for Germans, Germany's uh, energy issues and really the rest of Europe. But if, but the U.S. has not wanted this to go forward. And this has to be a, a factor in what the U.S. is trying to do now. They're trying to more or less create, recreate the bipolar world that was established within SC68. And bringing people into NATO means that they will have to spend, these European countries will have to spend a certain amount of their GDP or their national budgets on weapons, which of course the U.S. is going to to sell them, uh, and so it's this is I see this as the U.S. trying to re-engineer these uh, this this arrangement because without doing so, the actual workings of the global economy are going to allow for the continued uh, you know improvement of the Chinese economy, the growth of Chinese economic and and thus military power. And it will make Russia all the more powerful because they can uh, sell raw materials to China, to um, Western Europe. And this is a, a, a huge threat to the U.S. It's basically the same threat in, 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 way, in many ways. It's the same threat that NSC 68 was created to deal with. And now these other sanctions regimes and this war in Ukraine is designed to more or less maintain U.S. hegemony. So if people are thinking like, I don't understand why the media would be pushing this Ukraine war if it wasn't really like important or the moral thing to do for the United States, it's because this is really a war for the U.S. empire to stop uh, these historical trends, which were pointed out by people more than 100 years ago, that Eurasia is an enormously po uh, powerful source of raw materials and uh, potential industrial and military power, economic power. And that for Western imperialists, you're going to have to try to control this or contain it. The last picture I'll show here is on the Chinese side of it. I believe that this picture is taken from John Pilger's film, uh, The Coming War with China. But you see all these military bases around China as well. If you look at where all of these military bases are around both Russia, China, well, and you can add Iran, Iran to that as well. You see that these there's no there's nothing comparable to the U.S. side. There's no there's no Chinese bases that surround the United States or Russian bases that surround uh, the United States or Iranian and so on. This is uh, the Monroe Doctrine says we was full stop not allow other countries into the Western Hemisphere. Okay, so the U.S. is able to say this whole hemisphere is its sphere of influence, and you better not make any inroads there. But Russia you know, is, is expected to suffer a CIA coup that installs an anti-Russian regime right at its doorstep. It's uh, ridiculous, but of course, it's never uh, conveyed honestly in the U.S. media. 
And uh, this is dangerous. This is dangerous. It's, it's history that we can actually understand. We can see what the U.S. is doing. Uh, and it makes it helps us to make sense of all the lies and otherwise uh, the, the obfuscating things that officials say all the time. This is really just imperialism. And it also shows why the war in Afghanistan was so important. Afghanistan being right there in the middle of Central Asia, right there in the so-called World Island. And of course, we also know that uh, Afghanistan has borders with uh, China. It's not a big border, but it has a border with China and a border with Iran. And uh, it, it had a border with the former Soviet Union, but it's also very close to Russia today. Um, I, I just wanted to say, you know, you were talking about the importance of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline in this conflict, the proxy war in Ukraine. This was made very clear before Russia invaded. We saw at the Munich Security Conference, which was in early February 2022, a few weeks before Russia invaded, we saw that uh, Baerbock, the German foreign minister, said very clearly that the Germany did not want to certify the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. That was before Russia invaded Ukraine. Of course, when Russia invaded, then they said, yeah, this is not going to be certified. Before that, even, we saw that Victoria Newland, the third in command of the U.S. State Department, who orchestrated the coup in Ukraine in 2014, overthrowing Ukraine's democratically elected president, Viktor Yanukovych. You know, there's this leaked phone recording of, of her deciding who the leaders of the post-coup regime in, in Ukraine would be. She said as well, before Russia invaded, that the U.S. was pressuring Germany to, to not certify Nord Stream 2. Mike Pompeo, when he was, you know, former CIA director who became Secretary of State in Trump administration, he said the U.S. would be willing to do everything to stop the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. He said that. We'll, we'll do everything to stop Nord Stream 2. This is... These are aggressive actions taken against a country that is ostensibly one of the U.S.'s greatest allies, Germany. It's still technically occupied by the U.S. with 55,000 U.S. troops. These are the kinds of actions the U.S. carries out against its allies. And, you know, just to wrap up here, a name that has come up a lot is Brzezinski. And I just want to briefly just I, I want to look at the specific quotes he had in his book, The Grand Chessboard. I mean, because it. it what he wrote in 1997 in this book, it, it just exactly what he warned about is exactly what happened. This is from this is from the Grand Chessboard: American Primacy and Its Geostrategic Imperatives, 1997 by Brzezinski, and he has this classic quote here where he's talking about potential scenarios that could threaten the U.S. empire, and. He talks about the importance of the U.S.-Japanese-Korean triangular security relationship. And he says, the United States may have to determine how to cope with regional coalitions that seek to push America out of Eurasia, thereby threatening America's status as a global power. The most dangerous scenario would be a grand coalition of China, Russia, and perhaps Iran, an anti-hegemonic coalition united not by ideology, but by complementary grievances. Of course, that is exactly what has emerged. And he said that's the most dangerous scenario. Well, thanks to you know, US diplomats constantly pushing for these aggressive policies against China and Russia, thanks to uh, Trump destroying the Iran nuclear deal, that is exactly what's emerged. But, but also what's interesting about this passage is he talks about another great threat to US hegemony one would be a Sino-Japanese axis, which, I mean, that's kind of crazy. I, I 
can't imagine that happening anytime in, in the near future, given the history of Japanese colonialism in China. But what, what you were talking about earlier, Aaron, the, the other point, you know, as, this, as the Stratfor founder said, the biggest threat to U.S. hegemony is a potential Russian-German alliance. This is also what Brzezinski said. He wrote, also quite remote, but not to be entirely excluded, is the possibility of a grand European realignment involving either a German-Russian collusion or a Franco-Russian entente. One could imagine a European-Russian accommodation to exclude America from the continent. So what he warned about here in chapter two is exactly what the U.S. is, is doing, acting on now to prevent that kind of Eurasian alliance to maintain U.S. hegemony. And in the process, the U.S. is destroying Europe's economy, bankrupting German industry, which is at the heart of the European economy. And we see the, the consequences, you know, gas prices, oil prices skyrocketing, energy bills across Europe are insanely expensive. We see German capitalists warning that their industry might go bankrupt. We see German labor unions protesting and saying that this insane policy of sanctions on Russia, the largest energy provider to Germany, is going to bankrupt their industries. And obviously, clearly, there, there's, there are major class con class. Uh, there's a major class conflict and irreconcilable differences between German capitalists and German workers. But if the German industry is completely bankrupted, that hurts both of them. So this is one of those scenarios in which the German capitalists and the German workers are being completely shafted. And the only people who benefit, of course, are U.S. capitalists because they have fewer competitors and a bigger market that they can flood U.S. Pro products into in Europe. Right. I mean, all those things that he's that, that Brzezinski points to are pretty much coming true, except for the Sino-Japanese one, which he says, which we would, which from our perspective seems far-fetched. And yet, I don't know that if things continue to look bad for the U.S., then it may then something that's unthinkable like that might actually be more possible because. Um, the Japan has been tied to the U.S. economy, but as the U.S. and the and the U.S. dollar, but as this system changes, they may, you know, they, there may be some real radical changes. I mean, I, I just think the Japanese people could wake up and look at like what the LDP is and how the U.S. has run this cut that country, uh, you know, and managed it and essentially turned it into a colony, uh, more or less, uh, it, just by dominating the commanding heights of its economy in different ways and being so intertwined with the Japanese elite. So it's, you really see what the U S did in world war two, that it, it essentially, you had the anti-communist pact of it, Germany and Japan, you know, the two pillars in the East and West, yeah, Italy too, but whatever. But, and they just, they brought those into the American empire under, under American management and they managed the anti-communist international with these countries as, you know, bookends of Eurasia and put containment in so that, the, the Eurasian heartland would not be doing business with China or sorry, with Japan and Germany. And that's been the strategy. Uh, but it's, it's showing some cracks now and it may well be, eventually it may come to pass that all of Brzezinski's nightmare scenarios are what are, are what happened. So we'll just have to see. Uh, I'm hoping that the fear of that prospect does not lead the U S to take actions that will, lead to nuclear war uh, and this the ukraine thing is definitely in that category it makes no sense whatsoever 
uh, in, given the risks involved for the U.S. to be doing this. So you think, why would they do it? If you think it's because of the, the morality of state sovereignty and international law, then I, I don't even know really what to say to you. You have, you're, you're beyond my ability to help. To tell you. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about empire. It's, it, they, for Russia, they see it as an existential war for Russia. For the US, the US imperialists, they see it as an existential conflict for the US empire. This is quite different and it, it's a, it could lead to uh, uh, horrors that we've only, you know, sort of contemplated in nightmare form up to this point. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good note to end on. It is really scary. This is, they, these imperialists really are playing with fire and it is an extremely dangerous situation. And like you said, it's not to benefit working people in Ukraine who are being completely screwed over by these insane neoliberal policies that Zelensky is imposing, mass privatization, selling off state assets to U.S. corporations, ringing the opening bell in the New York Stock Exchange, announcing $400 billion of giveaways to U.S. corporations, uh, making it illegal to form a union, uh, suspending collective bargaining rights, uh, banning all communist and socialist parties in Ukraine. Like, Ukrainian workers are getting screwed over. I mean, obviously, they're also being conscripted to go fight in this war. Clearly, Russians are dying as well. And U.S. workers are not going to benefit from this. I, I just said that, you know, European workers are being are being screwed over. Their economies are being destroyed. They're they're unable to pay their energy bills. But also U.S. workers are not benefiting from this. The only people who are benefiting are these U.S. capitalists and the military industrial complex. And even parts of the U.S. capitalist class aren't going to benefit from it. It's mostly just like the the financialized international capitalist. A lot of local capitalists also are not going to benefit. So it's it's really dis so destructive. And obviously, if there's, a, if there's a nuclear war, I mean, everyone loses. It's just catastrophic. So I, I think that's a it's a good note to end on. It's it's important to to talk about the relevance of that history going back to the 1940s and 50s and the creation of the national security state and how it brought us to this this moment that we're in this very precarious, very dangerous moment. But this was part 13 of the Empire and Deep State series that I, Ben Norton, am co-hosting with my good friends Aaron Good and Seamus McGinnis of the American Exception podcast. This is an in-depth exploration of Aaron's book, American Exception, Empire, and the Deep State. We will have many more parts coming uh, ahead. This was the end of our analysis of chapter six of the book, which is about the history of the Truman era and the emergence of the U.S. national security state. There's a lot more great history coming soon. If you want to support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash American Exception. And you can also go to patreon.com slash Multipolarista. This is a joint production and we'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot.